I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, if you would, open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 5. And here we are, talking about leadership, because that's what Peter is talking about in this passage. And um, I'm going to give you guys a quick recap, because last time we started this passage, and we dealt with some of the things that Peter said. So let me just read to you verses 1 and 2. He says this, "Um, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory which will be revealed. So it's to the elders. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And he goes on and gives several more instructions for leaders in the church. Um, So this brings up the term elders. We went over this last week, but here's a quick recap. Elder, overseer, bishop, and pastor are synonymous terms in the scriptures, meaning they're all the same person. So elder is pastor, bishop, an overseer is also an elder. This is, um, last. you could look at last week's video on YouTube if you want to check that out. The details on that, we'll quote the verses on why we see it that way. The only other position we see in the church in the New Testament, other than elder, is deacon. Elder and deacon. And deacon seems to have a lesser responsibility, but still an important one. I think Stephen is a good example of someone who was a deacon, who was brought in to do ministry tasks, but wasn't necessarily in the elder position in the early church. Um, Elders are appointed. They're not voted in. In the New Testament, we never see anybody getting voted in in church leadership. We see them being appointed by other godly leaders. This doesn't mean that if somebody was voted into a position, that means they don't belong there or it's ungodly. I'm just, this is just what our example is in the scripture. They were appointed. Paul appointed elders. He sent Timothy that he might appoint elders at Ephesus. Um, He told Titus to commit these teachings to other godly men and The qualifications for elders are given to Titus and Timothy as well. Um, The task of the elders is to focus on building up the church, the saints. Their their focus is ministry to the body, that the Christian body might go out and do the ministry. So we're we're equippers. We we prepare people for serving Jesus in their daily lives. That's the major task of the elder. There's only one, in particular, there's only one talent that elders are told they have to have. I mean, they have a lot of character traits they're required to have to be in this position, but there's only one skill that they have to have. So the character trait, like godliness, is a character trait. But skills, like, say, mechanics, that's a skill. The one skill an elder has to have, teaching. They have to be able to teach. They have to be able to hold fast to solid doctrine, to convince others of those truths, and to um, even correct people and catch false doctrine as it comes up. So real quick, before we move forward, let's look at Titus, Titus chapter 1. Here's a passage also about elders. In Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5, we'll just read an example of this. Look at the character traits they have, the qualities they have, but there's only one skill that they're required to have. And this is consistent with what's written in 1 Timothy as well. He says in Titus 1.5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Notice there's multiple elders in every city. Again, it's not like one elder who is like the king of the city kind of thing. This is why James writes, If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders. Meaning that in an individual in the church had access to multiple elders. It wasn't like there was one elder for every million people and no one ever gets to see the guy. There was meant to be a lot of people. 
Interesting factoid here for you. I did the math on this, but when you look at the numbers of people in the books of like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you look at the numbers and the number of priests per person meant there was one priest for every 50 Israelites, meaning that every Israelite could have had a personal relationship with the priest, with the Levite, so that they might have had someone to, to communicate to them, hey, explain this to me. Could you, hey, could you help me out with this? Hey, could you pray for me? I mean, there was like a personal ministry that was there. It wasn't like this distant, you know, stage ministry only kind of thing. So anyways, I think that's kind of a neat thing. If you just do the math on it, you'll get that, those numbers. I like doing those random things with the Old Testament. But um, So he's to appoint elders in every city. And verse 6, here's the qualifications. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless. Must be, right? And it, builder, uh, elders here, bishop, notice that there's an interchange between those two titles. Appoint elders, and he goes, for a bishop must be blameless. Um, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. And then we get to the skill. Those are all character traits, right? Then we get to the skill. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. So he's going to hold fast the teachings, the doctrines of Christ, the teachings you know, of Christianity, the faith, right? The term the faith, when we see the in front of the word faith, it's always talking about a list of doctrines, not, not a, a personal belief. When we see just the word faith, it's talking about the personal belief. Anyway, throwing a lot at you all at once here. But anyway, so I'm just doing the recap here, and we'll, then we'll just take our time through the rest. But you get the idea that the, that the job of the teacher, the elder in the church, one of their jobs is to be a champion of the faith is to hold fast to solid doctrine and to convince the body of solid doctrine and to actually call out false, false teaching when they see it. So I try to, I try to fulfill this, this role, and I sometimes feel like I'm the only guy around doing it. Now, not at Hosanna necessarily at our church, but I mean, when I talk with other pastors at other churches, sometimes I get the feeling that they're like, well, I don't really want to, you know, I, don't wanna, I just want to be what we're about, not what we're not about. And I'm like, well, I'm going to be both. Because that's what I see as my commission in scripture, is convicting those who contradict, bringing an awareness of the false teachings, calling them. In fact, if you look at a lot of the epistles are the, them doing the very thing. They're calling out false teachings as they're arisen. If we weren't supposed to do this, Galatians never would have been written. But we're to call out false teaching. That's what Galatians is. We're to call out false teaching and false practices in the church. That's what First Corinthians is. This is, this is what a lot of our epistles are. Jude, I mean, first, second Peter, this is, this is what these are. So um, that's a quick recap. The, author, the authority of the elder is meant to enable him to serve the body, not to be served by the body. He has a limited authority. He is not the, the, um, the, the God's magic eight ball for the church, fortunately. Um, but here we are. Let's read again in first Peter chapter five, verses one and two, and we'll continue moving through the instructions of Peter towards leadership, which tells us what to look for in leaders, what to admire, um, and what to aspire toward, because these are good things for everybody to have. So in uh, verse 2, he says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. And that's where we pick up. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Compulsion is the idea of being pushed into something, being forced, being compelled to do it, you have to do this thing. 
because you have to. And this can happen in ministry. This can happen anywhere. What starts out as a passion becomes a commitment. What starts out as an opportunity to serve and you're grateful for the chance becomes you're grudging because you said you would do it. That they're doing it out of compulsion, not willingly. This is not okay. This is the point at which I look at someone who's doing this and I try to maybe maybe minister to them if I can. Hey man, think about the heart behind this thing. But if they continue to treat ministry like it's the, it's the, it's the lucky redheaded stepchild that they just happen to bless sometimes because they're such a generous person. You know what I mean? If they do this, then I think that it's time for them to do some serious heart surgery. It really is. Because as a leader, I start to go, can I do without them? You know, because a little leaven leavens a whole lump and that attitude spreads throughout the other, other people in ministry and it affects a lot of people. I've seen that. Sometimes in ministry, you find out that your expectations weren't met. Wait, that's not accurate. In ministry, you will find out that your expectations are not met. (laughs) I should say this about everything in life, right? In work, in marriage, in parenting, in grandparenting. I mean, you name it, you're going to find out that maybe your your, your dream world version of this, the Barbie land version in your mind of what was going to happen, isn't exactly what happened. I've seen people who ministry started as a passion for them. And anything they did for the Lord seemed so exciting. I remember uh, the first thing I ever did for the Lord, um, where it was in the church, like as serving in the church. Um, We painted. I was asked, they were like, hey, we're having a work day. And I went out there and I was so excited. I was just a teenager. And I'm like, I want to do something for God. Like, I can paint. I could slap paint on the wall. I could do that for the Lord. So I got all excited. I went out there and did it. And I remember looking at the people to my left and right and seeing how some of them were like grumpy about it. And they were, they were like kind of having bad attitudes. And I just was like, oh, I can't believe that that's their attitude. We're painting for the Lord. And now someone will be like, oh, you noob. <laughs> that's how we should always be. It really is. It really is. But sometimes my, you know, my expectations aren't met. And I've heard um, some leaders saying how there's certain parts of their job that they don't like. Now, to anybody who works outside of the church, they're like, what? <laughs> there's parts of your job you don't like? Like, why? Well, I, I like teaching, but I don't like that counseling stuff. All right. So like, that'd be like the trash man being like, you know, I like driving my truck around, but I don't like having to pick up people's trash. <laughs> this is your job. This is, this is the calling. It's interesting to me that the people who have the most glamorous positions in ministry usually have the most sense of entitlement and complaints about those very positions while someone else is serving in a much grimier fashion with no complaints at all. It just seems to me that those with the dirty jobs... No, they got dirty jobs. And those who seem to be up, they'll like complain and nitpick about these little inconveniences and stuff like that. This is dangerous because now we're, now we're serving by compulsion. Like I'm only doing it because I have to. Maybe I'm upset because I didn't start a revival. Who do you think you are? You know, this is like really, wow, Jeremiah didn't start a revival. This is, but the point is I get to serve the Lord. And I want to do it not by compulsion, but instead I want to do it willingly 
willingly, not against my will, but with my will. I'm going to do this even though I don't, I, I really truly don't want to do it. And so what I want to do now is instead change my attitude and do it with my will. This word also willingly can mean purposely, purposely do it with purpose. And I think here it's important to realize I need to not forget the purpose of the ministry because then I might not, if I don't forget the point, then I might remember what drew me to it in the first place. I don't really like counseling. You don't, you don't like speaking God's truth into people during those important, difficult times of their lives so that they might make a good decision instead of a bad decision. So then you can impact them and their kids and their future kids' kids forever. Well, when you put it that way, <laughs> maybe counseling is a good idea. I don't know. It just, you know, it's inconvenient. They always want to meet after hours. Yeah. I must not lose the purpose because if I forget the reason why I'm doing it, then it becomes compulsion. I'm doing it just because I have to. I have to be here. I have to show up. I've got to plug in. I've got to run the sound. Or I've got to play the guitar. Or I've got to do the thing. And I forget why. This word willingly, not only does it mean purposely, it could also be translated voluntarily. Voluntarily. Some of you guys know the story of Deborah in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges. And we read about Deborah, who was a judge in Israel. Really interesting story. She's a woman who's a judge in Israel. And you're like, ooh, didn't know that could happen. Yes, it certainly can. And so she's there, and she tells, um, it's Barak, right? I always, I always get his name mixed up for some reason. Balaam and Barak. and Anyway, so Barak, though, he is told by her, hey, God's told you, go and rout the enemy. And Barak's like, oh, I don't want to. And so she says, no, go. And so he goes, okay, I'll go if you go. He's reluctant. He's not doing it willingly. He's doing it how? By compulsion. He has to be called. Are you going to be there? You coming? Well, I don't know. Who else is going? Is Deborah going? Yeah, I'll go. Fine. I'll go. Okay. So anyways, long story short, he ends up routing the enemy and stuff, but the, but the delivery is given over to JL. She puts the tent peg through Sisera's head, and she gets kind of the final blow on, on the, the general of the bad guys, you know. Huh? It is a very violent book. It, it is. Um, well, I say that. You take that with a grain of salt. It, was, it doesn't promote violence, but it records it for sure. Um, now, Deborah sings a song in Judges chapter 5. And it's a really interesting song. It begins in a way that strikes me, knowing the story and her interaction with Barak. She says this. She sings, Judges 5-2. She says, when leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Why do you think Deborah was in this really high position of authority and it wasn't maybe a guy in the same spot? Maybe the guy said no. Maybe he just was like, nah, I don't really feel like it. And I've found in ministries so many times there's a woman in a position of leadership because a guy said no, he didn't feel like it. I remember one time I was being asked by a, a, a small group of people. They were like, we could have communion. And I was like, well, I don't know. I've never led communion before. And immediately two of the girls in the room were like, well, I'll do it. <laughs> and it wasn't like a, a usurping or something like that. They were just simply going like, well, if you're not going to do it, someone's going to do it. And, and oftentimes, girls, when you step into a leadership role that you feel doesn't belong to you, but you have to because the guy won't do it, I think that that's appropriate. I think that it no, it's better that than a total vacancy. That makes sense to me, you know? And there's some homes like this where the, the, the mom steps into the leadership role because dad is picking his nose on the couch all day long. 
And, um, and r- rightly so, rightly so. And hopefully he'll step up into his role rightly and she'll relinquish that to him as Deborah was hoping to do with Barak, but he wouldn't, didn't want to. He wasn't willing. He was reluctantly doing it. And so she sings, bless the Lord. When? When leaders lead in Israel. When the people willingly offer themselves. So do you, those of us who serve, which is most of us here, do you drag your feet into service in ministry? Or do you run willingly into the things the Lord has you doing? Do it willingly. Do it willingly. This is a heart issue. It really is. And... Um, This is where I'm going to just say something straight up. I've heard bad advice in ministry that I think doesn't apply here. He says, not by compulsion, but willingly. I think some people apply this the wrong way. They go, that means I should only do in ministry what I feel I can do willingly. Do you catch that? This is like the person who hears that God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want us to give grudgingly. And the person goes, well, I only give grudgingly, so I guess I'll never give again, ever. And I'll go... Interesting twisting of the scriptures you got going on there, buddy. <laughs> I've heard people say that God would not call you to a ministry you do not like. Really? Have you read the Bible? <laughs> Have you read the book of Jonah? <laughs> God, God said to me that I had to go to Nineveh and preach to them, but you know what? My heart's really not in it, so I don't think I have to do it. I don't think God would really call me to do something I don't feel like doing. Really, Jonah? You're going to have a whale of a time denying it. (laughs) Sorry, bad pun. Couldn't help it. Um, Actually, yes. Paul seemed called to the Gentiles, but if you read his letters, it seems like his longing is to preach to the Jews. Like his preference would be to go to the Jews. Oh, I long, I want to see, I would let myself be a curse from Christ for the sake of my brethren, the Jews. But God's called me to the Gentiles. And so he goes and he does what God tells him to do, even though he looks and he's thinking, I'd really like to do this. Pastor Chuck Smith, who I have a ton of respect for, Pastor Chuck did not want to be the pastor. He wanted to be the evangelist. He wanted to be Billy Graham. And this is what he really desired to be. He met Billy Graham one time, said, you know, I always wanted to have your ministry. And Billy was like, I always wanted to have your ministry and just be able to stay in one place. (laughs) Ironically, but the Lord does not necessarily always make us feel like doing what he tells us to do. And the danger of following your heart into ministry is that you may follow your heart right back out. And I think we've seen this happen. Maybe it's happened to you. Maybe you thought, I'm really feeling this ministry, you know. So you step into it, and then you're not really feeling it anymore. So then you step out of it. But there's a great importance with consistency in ministry that we do it. There's some fruit we don't see until 10 years later. You know? I mean, it's, there's different kinds of ministries. You know? I mean, there's like the, um, there's the mustard seed ministries where, I don't know if you've ever actually planted mustard seeds. They grow up super fast, really quick. They produce their crop, and then they die. And there's certain ministries like that that just live for a really short period of time. You're involved. Boom. You have your full fruit cycle, and then you're like, that was it. It's done. But there's other ministries that are more like the avocado tree ministry, where you plant the thing, you wait, you watch it grow, three, four years goes by, and you're like, yep, it's taller than me now. And you wait three or four years, four, five, six years, and all of a sudden it starts producing fruit. And it's like 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, now you start to see the fruit of that ministry. I remember years ago being told, um, when I was talking about how I was involved in all these different things, but I I felt like spread too thin, like I'm not having as much of an impact because I'm spread so thin, and... And my friend says to me, Mike, you and me, man, we just go all over. That's what we do. We're like rakes. 
and rakes, they have lots of fingers. They just got all over, but they don't go very deep into the soil. And I was like, well, that's lame. <laughs> I want to go deep, man. I want to have an impact. I want to have a lasting impact, not a, a passing impact. I want a fruit that remains. And um, one of my prayers coming to Hosanna was that the Lord would bring me to a church that I wouldn't leave. I want to stick around. I want to, I want to be involved for a long time now. This year actually is the, um, it was, what's 2016? So I've been 16 years I've been at Hosanna. I've been 10 years now the high school pastor. And um, that's good because the average high school pastor is like six months to a year in most places, <clears throat> which is a bummer because that's just when you make all your mistakes. <laughs> I feel sorry for the youth. Anyways, I think that being said, there's a willingness that we have to invoke within ourselves to serve in ministry. So don't dream about the ministry that's best for you. That's not ministry. That's Disneyland. Some pastors I've heard say it this way. I just want to teach and then do nothing and then teach and then do nothing and then teach and then stop it. (laughs) That's not ministry. That's just selfish. That's all it is. That's just like, I just want to eat and then not cook anything and then eat and then not cook anything and then eat. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Pastoral ministry, shepherd ministry is about taking care of the needs of the body not the needs of my desires for what I enjoy doing. And to have a, a pastor that says that, he's stuck on, on selfish is the issue at that point. And I'm not saying that we're immune, I'm immune for this, but I'm just, let's call it like it is. That's just selfish. We're to serve the body, we're to minister to the needs of the flock. So if I go, the flock needs this, then that's what I need to do. Then I'm going to learn that skill, I'm going to try to provide that service, I want to do whatever it is that the body needs. Of course, that'll involve teaching because that's what the scripture says. But if I'm doing it by compulsion, what if that's you? You're listening and you're like, I'm totally serving by compulsion. That's my only reason why I show up anymore. What should I do? Should I quit? I should quit. I should probably quit, right? My goodness. Why do leaders always want to quit? (laughs) Servants always want to quit. It's the solution to every problem. Oh, man. Whoa, what's that crazy feedback going on? Oh, man, they're looking at me. They think I messed up, but it wasn't me. It was the thing and the guy and the thing. And he twisted it. Oh, he doesn't even in this ministry. I should quit. That's the solution. I should quit. Some people treat their marriages this way. Their relationships this way. It's very unfortunate. The solution is almost never quit. Did you come here to serve or did you come here to be served? The solution is to get sit down before the Lord and pray, God, please, please, please help my heart to be back into service and serving others in the name of Jesus and not into getting my tank filled through ministry, which doesn't actually work. So start doing it willing. Start doing it by choice. Just work on that heart surgery and ask the Lord to work on that. I mean, I don't know about you, but every time I ask the Lord to do some heart surgery on me, every time he does it, every time. And I have to do it a lot. (laughs) So I'm very glad for that. So the next uh, commander instruction to leaders, he says, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So cha-ching, money comes up in the instruction to leaders. Here's the first question I'm curious to ask, and I think you might be as well, is is it right to pay leaders in the church? Is it right to pay them, to give them financial compensation for the time and energy they spend doing ministry? The short answer is yes. Let me show you in the scriptures why that is. And then I want to balance it out. I want to balance that out. So, 1 Timothy 5, let's turn there. Let's look at it together. 
1 Timothy 5, <coughs> pardon me, verse 17. First Timothy 5, 17, he says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's interesting, right? The context of, of this passage, verses 17 and 18, indicates that this honor seems to be in the form of material pay. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. This, is, this, this term is always used in the context of feeding the people that are laboring, giving them food. The, the Old Testament passages don't muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain so that it can eat the grain as it's plowing the field. It can just nibble and, and munch as it goes because the laborer is worthy of his wages. <clears throat> so um, let them, those who rule well be kind of worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle, out or, muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of its wages. Do not receive, it continues, an accusation against an elder, except from two or three witnesses. This is actually a biblical passage that is an important instruction for us that people ignore. There will be, in, even godly leaders will get, random weird accusations and weird things said about them that aren't true because the enemy wants to tear us down i read stuff all the time on on uh, youtube about me and i'm like well i didn't know that <laughs> i'm a pretty horrible guy <laughs> i wasn't even aware i was that bad but i've also heard stories about me you know someone who has something maybe against me and then a few years goes by and then all of a sudden i hear from somebody third party like they said you did this and i'm like i did what like i I didn't do that. Yeah. Now, I'm not really interested in defending myself, running around and trying to put out fires, but the scripture has a, um, a backup for this. It simply it says, says, unless it's brought by two or three witnesses, ignore it. Just ignore it. Then you might say, well, what if the elder really is sinning? What if this elder really has a problem and these witnesses are exposing a real issue? Well, then there should be two or three. There should be more than one person that's aware of this on earth, you know. But if you find out that they are doing this thing, here is what you do. Verse 20. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. So you've got this, this um, sort of safety. You know, you ignore an accusation if it's just brought by one person. Eh, they're probably just mad because they gave them counsel they didn't like. I've, I've had people do this. I give them counsel they don't like. I'm like, well, that's sin. And all of a sudden, um, the, you know, they're Mike kicked me out of the church. And I'm like, what? When did I? <laughs> I don't know. I, I've, apparently, I've kicked a lot of people out of church, but I haven't. It's only been like four but <laughs> true story but um, but anyhow if they are sinning if it say i am sinning and i'm a real sin is exposed you don't quietly sweep it under the rug you go and announce it to the church you rebuke me in front of everybody because this is this is the accountability of leadership so it's like hey this is what happened we're going to bring you up and we're going to tell everybody what happened and rebuke you and maybe that means you sit down and you're out of ministry depending on the you know consequence of whatever's going on so there's a, a protection that's there. Now, that's where the first passage. There's another one in Galatians 6. Galatians 6, verse 6. Now, this one's actually an instruction not to leaders, but it's to everybody else. Galatians 6, <clears throat> verse 6 says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Um. This is where we get the idea of giving wherever you're fed. 
You know, where, you, where you're getting fed, where you're being ministered to, that's where you give. Now, I do not want you after service to come and hand me money. Um, do not do this. You already do this <laughs> when you tithe. Because out of the giving of Hosanna, my bills are paid and my car is paid. Now, it, for most of my time in ministry, over half my time that I've spent serving the Lord, I didn't get any compensation financially, and I don't care one way or another. But, but now I am. And, um, and so the, the church, by giving, they're helping provide for the leaders so I could spend the time preparing and, and spend the time doing the ministry and, and be there available and that sort of thing. And same thing with Pastor Gary. Or we have, I think, four pastors on staff. No, five for our church. So, <clears throat> so let him who's taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. I say give where you're, where you're being fed. If a church is where you're getting fed the word, then you should be giving in that location. I don't necessarily think this means that, in fact, I think it would be a bad habit to translate this into some sort of like legalistic, like I'm walking down the street and I meet this guy and he's like, man, da, 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 and he tells me something. I'm like, ooh, that's a good word. Let me get you a fiver real quick. Here you go, buddy. Like that's just, like that, it's not, a, we're not hirelings, okay? This is, that's just weird. That's really strange. And if there's any sort of shadiness about it, then I don't want anything. I don't want anything, you know. I don't want people to give me a squat. Um, I do weddings here at the church. I do funerals for people that we know. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a pastor for hire. I know people, and they, someone passes away, and they're like, Mike, can you do the service? Or I'm going to get married. And I tell them all the same thing. I said, don't pay me. Don't give me anything for this. They go, oh, I wasn't sure about that. Because they never know, and they're willing to. But I say the same thing. I go, no, don't. Hosanna takes care of my needs that I might be available to the body. I'm taken care of. Don't worry about it. Um, it's, it's just weird. It's weird. I hate the money thing. I just hate it. But the Bible talks about it, so we're, we're getting in there. Um, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 9. <clears throat> so I think that from those two verses and other examples in the scripture, like the Levites and things like this, that they, they, uh, they were sustained by the offerings because they were doing the work of the tabernacle. I think that from this we have a, a context in which it's okay, it's in fact appropriate, to pay certain leaders in particular. Now, there are limits to this, and one of those limits is 1 Corinthians 9. Paul the Apostle, I mean, if anybody deserved to get paid for his job, Paul did, but he didn't. And here's, here's why. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 3. He says, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So that, like, say, Peter, for instance, probably didn't have a full-time job. He just did ministry and was sustained by, by offerings. But Paul and Barnabas, they didn't get any of that. They just did the labor on their own. Paul was a tent maker. And I recommend anybody in ministry to have some kind of occupation you can provide for yourself so you don't become a burden to your church. And so you have the option to do what Paul does here. Verse 7, he makes the case for why he deserves to get paid, but then he'll explain why he won't do it. It's really interesting. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Yeah, right? You're gonna, we're going to draft you, put in the military, buy your own gun. Get your own boots. No, we take care of our troops. That's what we do. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, and here's that verse again, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, 
Is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, now here's where it shifts. So he makes a case for why they should be, but now he's going to explain why he isn't. Nevertheless, we've not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But... I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, there's that willingly again, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with a stewardship. He's like, I better do it. I have a command from God, not from your wallets, to preach the gospel. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Let me say this. Leaders that demand to be, t- to be paid in order to do their ministry, they are preaching the gospel with charge and something is wrong. It's appropriate to pay them, but they better be willing to do it voluntarily is my understanding. I have made, some people might think of it's a mistake, and I'll stand by this. I've told Pastor Gary, because our church budget goes like this, depending on what's going on, and I've said, Pastor Gary, I just want you to know, if you stop paying me, I'm still going to do it. And I stand by that. Now, I don't think that that's an anomaly. Like, if that's not your idea, if that's not your opinion, if you're, I'm only here because you're paying me, well, then go away. Or even better, get your heart right. (laughs) Get your heart right. Paul served for free for ministry reasons, and I think that that's the thing. It's okay, it's appropriate to pay the leaders, but it's not appropriate for the leaders to demand to be paid. That's what's not appropriate. It, it profanes the gospel. It makes the gospel look like it's merchandise, look like it's about the money. And so Paul purposely said, I will, I will receive not a penny from you guys because the Corinthians, they were all money-centered, and he's like, I don't want you to think that I'm about that, so I won't receive anything from you. I won't receive anything. <clears throat> so I think some questions to ask is, um, if I if I receive any pay for the ministry I'm doing, is it going to somehow dampen that ministry? If it is, then don't do it. If if um, if I receive pay, is this something the church can afford? Can the body even afford this? If someone's like, "Oh, I'm giving you my last dime in faith," and I'm like, "Well, God will bless you for your seed faith," no, give it back to her. <laughs> Golly, you know that's just not cool. Like, if you're okay. Make it your own way, you know, and don't don't put a strain on people. I, I think that that's ungodly. It seems plain to me. Um, anyway, so is there is there even a need? You know, if I wrote a best-selling book and it came in with a landfall of money and then I was still asking the church to pay for my bills, I'd be like, why? Why are you doing that, Mike? You've got enough. I, I mean, I just, I appreciate the help, guys, so I don't have to live on the street. <laughs> Or get a, a different job, and then I'm less available to the body of Christ, which is, that's the whole point. Um, anyway, so if there's a good reason not to, then they shouldn't get paid. But now, here is, here's how we apply all this. Now, what, what Peter said, back to 1 Peter 5, he said, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So now he's getting to the heart of the leader. The leader is not to be serving for money. His purpose cannot be the money. If it is, something's wrong. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. 
I would say to leaders this, do you want to do ministry or do you want to make a living doing ministry? There's a difference. I know people who don't pursue any sort of anything because they're really hoping they can get on the gravy train of ministry. And it's interesting how those guys frequently never get on that train. Because people see it and they're like, you yeah, know, something sketchy there. Something a little sketchy going on there, you know, and they kind of, okay, well, we'll hold off on that guy a little bit. That's a little strange. Church is not here for that purpose. I'm going to do my job either way. It often sometimes starts about ministry and can end about money. <laughs> for some people, they're serving just for the Lord, but then it slowly becomes about money. You know, you can be convinced by money to do a job that you would otherwise never do. Many of you are convinced by money to do jobs that you wouldn't do Monday through Friday. But we can't have ministry that way. Ministry is not like that. Now, I'm not here talking about the janitor. I'm talking about those who are in spiritual ministerial positions. If, you know, I'd rather pay the janitor and not the pastor if it was going to cause the pastor to be in that spot. Because it's just such a, it's such a problem. It's such a problem. Jesus called this person the hireling, right? They're not here to care for the sheep and tend the flock. They're here to fleece them. They look out and they don't see sheep. They see fleece. And there's too many pastors in our neighborhoods that are like this. Local pastors here. And I think they're under God's judgment. And they're going to be very ashamed when they're like, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? He's like, you got your reward. Now I got something else for you. Jesus talked about this, right? He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and doesn't care about the sheep. The person who's serving for financial gain, he's gone once he realizes that this isn't going to work out. Oh, I'm, they're, gonna, they're not going to pay me enough. They're not going to pay me anymore. They're going to give me any more money. Like, you know what? That's... I love Calvary Chapel because it's so not our mentality. It's just so not our mentality. Um, and I really appreciate that. I really, really appreciate that. That, uh, that I've, I've never been serving with anybody who told me about how they were like, yeah, I'm thinking about applying to one of those jobs in Beverly Hills, man. They really pay good. I've just never served with a guy like that, and I really appreciate that. I mean, guys who, who do are, are carnally minded. So do not think that ministry is a path to wealth and the pastor on the opposite side should not be asked to live in poverty. This is not like, oh, the more poor my pastor is, the more spiritual he is. Nor is it that the more rich he is, the more spiritual he is. I think that our philosophy here is that the pastor should live at the same level as the people. And if the pastors, you know, if the people are, are driving jalopies, the pastor should drive one too. <laughs> that makes sense. If the, if the people are, uh, are, are driving Ferraris, well, I, I don't think I could even handle that, but <laughs> to be honest. But, but I do think that it's weird if the pastor lives at some level above the people. In some places, they do this because they think it makes the pastor look more spiritual because he has all this money and all this bling. He gets a parking spot in front of the church. He parks his Maserati or whatever he's got up there. Is that a watch or a car? I can't remember. But he, you know, he parks his car there, and everybody looks at it. And then because then they think, oh, if I give, then you know, I can be like him. And it's just like, man, run away from that church if you can't change it from within, <laughs> one or the other, because that is wacky and weird. We don't do it for the money; we do it for the Lord. We don't do it for dishonest gain, and it's dishonest because the very the, see, I make a statement by standing in a pulpit to preach the word of God. 
The statement is that I'm doing this with pure motives. The statement is I'm doing it for the Lord and for his glory, and then I'm doing it accurately according to his word. Just by walking into the pulpit, I say this. But if what I see in my eyes is dollar signs, then I'm, it's dishonest gain. It's dishonest gain. I'm an, I'm an actor. I'm a hireling. I'm a hypocrite. So anyways, verse 3. First Peter 5, verse 3. He says, not being, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Not being lords. To leaders, I just want to remind us, we're not Jesus. Jesus is Lord, I'm not. And how I respond to people challenging me will dictate whether I realize this or not. Now, it is the tendency of awesome, godly Christian people to sometimes exalt the leaders into a place they don't belong. We are not as being lords over those entrusted to us. I remember hearing a story from a pastor who uh, planted a church and years and years into the church plant, he's getting older now, and he has his uh, youth pastor come and teach in the sanctuary. This was years ago when I was in the school ministry and he came and spoke, this pastor. And he says how the youth pastor came in the sanctuary and taught and he did this for like two weeks while the pastor was out for some reason and I don't know what he was gone doing, but he comes back and this lady comes and he just keeps hearing about how great this other pastor did when he was gone. Oh, it's so good. It was so great. And this lady comes in him. It was at the last straw to him. You know, his teaching was so great pastor. You should have him teach more often. And he's telling us this story. And he says, and I, I looked at her and said, well, what about me? And I just about fell over in my seat. I'm like, what about you? <laughs> What is your problem, man? This isn't about you. At the end of this guy's discussion, oh, he, by the way, he fired that youth pastor. At the end of the discussion, but this guy lectured, one of our students in the school of ministry asked him, um, what do you think is the most important quality to look for in leaders that you're raising up? And without hesitating, he said, and I'll bet you some of you can, can guess what word he said. He said, Loyalty. That's when I've projectile vomited right onto his face. No. <laughs> wrong. <clears throat> Unless you mean loyalty to Jesus and the gospel, you're completely wrong. Completely wrong. What you're showing is that you have too much of you mixed up in ministry. And that's why you're taking things so personal. And that is a constant battle for leaders is to take things personally when they happen. People showed up. Oh, I'll take it personally. Like, they didn't show up. Oh, I'm a failure. I'm you know, this is, this is, we go on these roller coasters because we take it too personally. This is a trap. Taking praise personally, taking hurt personally. Servants don't take things personally. They just do their job. That's it. That's it. They just do their job. Leaders... They're not lords over those entrusted to them, meaning they have limited authority and leaders ought to consider those limits when they're dealing with other people because sometimes, and maybe it's a, you know, and we talked a little bit about this after the study last week, but I want to mention it in this study as well, which we talked about the, the pastoral magic eight ball where I come with an issue and I'm like, pastor, I'm going to ask you about my problem. You're going to give me the definitive answer from God and then I'm going to do it knowing that God is directing my life. Now, Who's done that? I've, I've done that, actually. <laughs> this, and more of you than admit it, will it. But this is actually a problem. Because we cannot assume that this pastor will have the word of God for you on this particular issue. He, now, he might 
It's possible. It's just not guaranteed. It's also possible that your neighbor would have it or the person sitting next to you right now might have that. Or it's possible that God just wants you to make a wise choice based on the scriptures. <laughs> That's a possibility too. We're not the magic eight balls. We're not the voice of God. I mean, I'm going to seek wisdom for people, but I cannot seek lordship over this life. And I've been put in this spot and, and there's often times where I just have to honestly answer and I feel like, if, like I'm failing somehow when I do it. But I, they say, da, 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 and I go, that's a tough situation. I don't know. Can I pray for you? And I just wish I had this perfect, you know, do this. But I don't, how do I, I don't know. And sometimes I sense that the people telling me aren't telling me the whole story. In which case, I won't give them good advice. I won't give them advice at all. Because I, I'm like, there's something I'm not hearing. And I'm not going to let my advice be your excuse because you're bending your story to get the advice you want. <laughs> sometimes that happens. We've all probably heard that version of a story at some point. So then you might ask, um, well, then why should I go to pastors at all? Or why should I go to leaders at all for advice? Well, the whole point is they're supposed to be grounded in the word so they can help you filter biblically the thing you're going through. That's the idea. Is I can be like, well, scripture says this. You know, the Bible says this. Let, let's, let's get to the ground of the scripture on this issue. And hopefully that will happen. Biblical principles, which is why it's so important when you want advice. Don't filter the story. Just be completely real about what's going on. And then finally he says, be examples to the flock. So not as lords, but as examples. Because lords don't feel like they have to practice what they preach, right? Lords are above and beyond. But instead, pastors and leaders, elders are required to be examples, to lead by examples. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 11, 1, excuse me, Paul, he writes to them saying, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. I want to be able to say this as a leader. Follow me as I follow Christ. And if you know me well, you shouldn't be able to raise your hand and be like, but Mike, you don't. You should be able to know me well and be like, amen. Follow him as he follows Christ. This is, this is crucial. There's only one skill required, but there is a huge list of character traits required for leadership. It almost disqualifies all the leaders. <laughs> character is more important than skill. I read earlier... From Titus, I'd like to read from 1 Timothy, another one of these requirements for elders and for leaders. So 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. I'll just read it straight through. Think about these character traits. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So people have come to me. I said I was going to read straight through. I'm pausing now. Uh, people come to me. Hey, Mike, I'm, I'd like to be a pastor, but I don't know if God's called me to it. And they, of course, want me to be able to tell them whether God's called them to it or not. But I tell them instead, oh, you desire to be in the position of a bishop. Well, well, you desire a good work. A bishop then must be, and I give them the qualifications, because this is what you got to be, blameless. A bishop must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, meaning he's even keel, doesn't blow his top, doesn't do this thing constantly. Sober-minded, meaning he's a clear thinker. Of good behavior. He just has good, good quality behavior that he, that he exhibits in his life. He's hospitable. That this person is going to say, hey, what's mine is meant to be a blessing to everyone, not just me. He's hospitable. He's not, not selfish. And, hey, that's mine. Able to teach. Again, that's the one skill that's required. You've got to be able to teach. If you can't teach, then what are you going to do with all the time you're talking? <laughs> I love that pastor. He can't teach himself out of a flat tire. 
Um, not given to wine. Not given to wine. That's such a problem that it's actually got to be on the list. Not violent. Not greedy for money. But gentle. Not quarrelsome. Some guys are in leadership positions because they like to argue. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel. And so we got to know when it's like, you know what? I'm not going to engage in that. That's not important. So we know how to handle those type of things. Not covetous. Not covetous. He's not like, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. Whether it be women or it be items or it be property or whatever it is. Cars. He's not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? If he can't handle his home, he, he's going to translate his lack of managerial ability into ministry. And it's going to impact the ministry. Verse 6, not a novice. Now this is, I have to admit it, this is where sometimes Calvary chapels kind of blew it. We sometimes put people into high positions of ministerial authority at total novice levels. And we should have taken our time and we should have raised them up more slowly. I'm a super huge fan of raising people slowly. I know people want to be in leadership. And they, but the more they want it, the more I want them to slow down. Because it's not what they think it is. <laughs> and then, um, less, here's the danger. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So the arrogance leads to a self-destruction. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So he's got to actually have a good reputation among non-believers before he could be in Christian leadership. It's like this. Like, hey, Mike, I want to serve in the church and be in Christian leadership. All right, man. Give me the phone numbers of four worldly people you know. Do, 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 do. What do you think about the idea of so-and-so being involved in church leadership? What? Damn it, we were at the club last night. Da, 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 da. you got to have a good reputation all across the board. All across the board. So um, I've heard it said that it's difficult to find one of these guys. <laughs> I think it's true. <laughs> I think if you're really under the gun then you should just be very patient about who you need for leadership, that sort of thing. But also, um, that we should be focusing on discipling people into these qualities, not just looking for gifted teachers. Because that's a danger. That's a danger. We're like, we're like looking for the next superstar pastor instead of some, some men that are solid. Solid men. To be solid leaders with integrity, with whole character qualities, um, with the ability to teach. So we're to be examples. In other words, all these things are quality is in our characters and we're to be examples. Um, I like what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. He said, take heed, Timothy, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So my constant obsession is, Lord, I'm take, make sure my walk is right with you, Lord, and that my doctrine is good. If my walk is right and my doctrine is good, my ministry will be impactful. But if I have good doctrine and a bad walk, or a bad walk and good doctrine. It's going gonna, it's gonna to derail things. And then finally in verse 4 he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Notice that the chief shepherd is not Peter. I think if this had been written by the Roman Catholic Church, they would have written it completely differently. Peter, I, Peter, the chief shepherd, write to you. No, he says, fellow elder. And then he says, Abba, when the chief shepherd, and that's shepherd, pastor, same word. So again, we're talking about uh, synonymous terms. 
But Jesus is the chief shepherd. I'm under Jesus. Notice that I'm not ultimately accountable to Peter. I'm ultimately accountable to Jesus. And each local elders are directly accountable to Jesus. Now, this does not mean I can do what I want. Only God can call me to answer. No, no. It's like, don't you dare do what you want. God's going to call you to answer for it. You better do what he wants you to do. I'm directly accountable to him. So I'm under Jesus. That means I have a ministry that just blows my mind. As, as leadership, when you're in leadership, you have a Jesus-like ministry. You're a shepherding ministry, and he's the chief shepherd. Wow. That scares me. And it should. If it puffs me up, it's because I haven't realized how far the fall is from up here. This is a big deal. So he says, uh, then the chief shepherd, when he appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Notice when we receive our crown, fellow leaders, when we receive our crown, when Jesus appears, not before. It's so easy. I want to hear my name. I want to hear people call me pastor. I want to hear people call me leader. I want to hear people acknowledge me and my gifts and my skills and da, 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 da. And Jesus is like, you're settling for something that is so, so small. And what I have for you is a crown of glory that does not fade away. I'll be interested to see the crowns in heaven. I mean, if, if it was literally this way, you know, like, would you look over and you'd see like the church janitor's got a bigger crown than the pastor? <laughs> He's got like this little crown. Jesus, why? But the pastor taught and did all this. Why is his crown so small? I'll be like, oh, he got a bunch of rewards on earth. But the janitor, nobody ever thanked them. But I had a lot of thanks for them for what they did, you know, that, that we're serving under our chief shepherd and that's the person we look to. So my last encouragement to leaders is this. Do not look to ministry to get your tank filled. Jesus brings a reward when he comes. Too many people, they get in ministry and especially teaching ministries because there's, um, there's something we get out of teaching, you know. You guys are all looking at me when I'm talking and you're looking and you're watching me talk and I'm talking and you're looking at me. I mean, there's something about this that people can enjoy as much as others are terrified of and hate. You know? <laughs> um, but it should not be to fill my tank. It shouldn't be to fill my tank. And I'll know if that's my goal when I get bitter because you didn't fill my tank. People can't fill your tank anyways. Jesus brings his reward, our reward with him. And we're always to serve for that crown, not the crowns of men. Not the titles of men or the praises or the appreciation or the admiration of men. And this is something I have to constantly remind myself of because it's so easy to just want to look around and see people approving of me. I, I really do want you to approve of me. But I can't have this and Jesus' approval all the time. It's often going to be one or the other. Those people who do get into ministry for praise from people get a crazy shock that people's ministry, uh, people's praise isn't enough. The praise from individuals just isn't enough for them. And they'll twist the ministry because it's about getting the audience to say amen instead of preaching the truth of Christ to the audience. And that's the big difference. So who's, who's my chief shepherd here? It's got to be Jesus. So I, um, uh, that concludes our journey on leadership. And I'm actually so excited to get to do this. Um, it really ministers to me as a leader, just to remember what my own calling and requirements are. And I'm just, to be honest, really stoked to be digging into just the, all the character. Man, character is like steak. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, that's good. That's good stuff. I want that. I want that in my heart. I want that in my life. And, um, and that's the thing that we need, 
as believers. We need solid doctrine and good character, and we're good to go. We're good to go. I mean, you get that, your, your life is set, pretty much. Uh, the other stuff is just extra. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy, holy word. You give all the perfect advice to leaders and corrections. We pray we'd receive it. We pray, Lord, that you would give us two things. First, the application of these truths to our own lives so that we do not live with empty character or bad doctrine, but we have solid godly character, and that becomes the thing. We take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine. And we have good character and we have good solid truth in your word. And we also pray, Lord, that you give us eyes. Eyes that can see freshly our leadership, not so we can just be critical and and naggy or anything weird like that, Lord, but just so that we can have discernment, so that we see things for what they are, so we know how to respond. We love you, Lord. We want to serve you, follow you, Jesus. We're looking for the day when you come and you bring that that reward with you for us. Lord, it is all about you. And you you fill our tank, God. (laughs) We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.